the uh, 1966 movie, A Man for All Seasons, portrayed Sir Thomas More standing up to the King of England, Henry VIII. Uh, if you know your history, then you know he was the king that had six wives. Divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Anyway, in this movie, Sir Thomas More is a man of integrity, and so he infuses to, refuses to agree that King Henry VIII's uh, divorce is lawful. Eventually, the king determines that um, anyone who's unwilling to say that his divorce is lawful is threatened with the punishment of death. One of the most significant scenes in the movie comes when Sir Thomas More's friend, Richard, betrays him. Throughout the movie, Richard Rich was longing to kind of advance up the echelons of society. He found his moment to reach the post of the Attorney General of Wales, and all it cost him was his integrity by selling out Sir Thomas More. At one point, Sir Thomas More, he kind of walks over to Richard, notices the chain around his neck, and it was declared that he had been named the Attorney General of Wales. And at that point, Sir Thomas More takes the chain in his hand and he says, Ah, but Richard, it profits a man nothing to gain the whole world if he should lose his soul. But for Wales? In other words, Richard Rich didn't barter away his soul for the world, but for Wales. And that scene in A Man for All Seasons... Uh, epitomizes how we often are tempted to barter away God's grace for a lesser pleasure and privilege. In Genesis 25, the passage that we're studying together this morning, over and over again we see God's grace shine through. But as the chapter comes to a close, we see a man named Esau. We've already heard him read about in Hebrews chapter 12. We see a man named Esau despise the grace of his inheritance and sell it for a bowl of stew. It's my prayer That as we consider God's word together this morning, we would not despise God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. But rather we would delight in the grace that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 25. You're welcome to use one of the Bibles provided there as well in the the pew racks and pews around you. If you're using one of those Bibles, I believe you can find the passage beginning on page 19. The book of Genesis, it recounts how God is fulfilling His promise to send His Son into the world. His Son, the Savior, who would come and defeat sin and Satan and death. And that's why Genesis is so often concerned with family and offspring. It's waiting for, anticipating the sending of God's Son. And so as generation after generation steps onto the scene, we're watching the story unfold and wondering, is this the promised Son of Genesis 3.15, the promised Son that God would send, who would defeat Satan and death? Well, amazingly, three generations of family and offspring, sons, coalesce in this central chapter. Abraham represents the first generation. And in this chapter, his descendants and death are recorded. Isaac represents the second generation that we meet in this chapter. And he has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, as we will come to see, represents the third generation of the people who carry on God's promises. We're given kind of an initial sketch of his character and God's grace to him. Why do the gracious promises of God survive from generation to generation? Not because of the people in each generation, but because God is gracious to His people in each generation. God is faithful from generation to generation. In fact, 
This is at the heart of the message of Genesis chapter 25 for the people of God today. As God's chosen and consecrated people, do not despise your inheritance. Instead, delight in God's grace. Beloved, that's the sermon in a sentence. Do not despise your inheritance, but instead delight in God's grace. We'll study Genesis 25 in three sections under three headings. God's grace to an old man. God's grace to an outsider. And God's grace to an opportunist. That outline can be found on an insert in your bulletin. Uh, It has a full insert. And if you notice that there is lots of grace in that outline, that's because there's been lots of grace shown to us and shown to God's people in this text. Let's begin with point number one. God's grace to an old man. Follow along as we read Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 to 11. Genesis 25, verses 1 to 11. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Leushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines... Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roi. Well, God shows His grace to Abraham in a myriad of ways in these verses. First, we see that God showed His grace to Abraham in giving him another wife after the death of Sarah. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it was God who first said it was not good that man should be alone. And so it's a grace of God to provide Abraham with another wife, even in his old age. This union is entirely permissible according to God's Word. Those whose spouses die are free to remarry, but only in the Lord, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. Amazingly, God shows His grace to Abraham, not only in giving him a bride, but also in giving him a brood. Children, of course, are the natural fruit of marriage. Keturah bore Abraham many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. And, in fact, in these verses, they announced 16 descendants of Abraham, not including Isaac. Why are we learning about this? Well, Abraham, you'll remember, was first called by God in Genesis chapter 12. And he was promised in that chapter and in the chapters following that, chapters 13, 15, 17, and 22 to be specific, that he would be the father of many nations and that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Some of these children, these men, would even be the heads of new nations. Men like Midian, for example. Even in his old age, we see that God is graciously keeping his promises to Abraham. Though Abraham was a man of faith, we see that he's still deeply fallen and flawed. We see that there in verse 6. We learn that he had concubines. In the ancient world, a concubine was a woman who had a lower status than that of a wife. 
but, was, but had received rights from a household head, including the right to marital intimacy. This was contrary to God's design and God's decree. And Abraham is not at all being commended for his practice here. Rather, Moses is simply kind of communicating the facts of what was occurring in his life. As I said, this was and is contrary to God's design in Genesis 2. God only gave one wife to Adam. And he only intended marital intimacy to take place between one man and one woman. A husband and a wife. That's the context for marital intimacy. Our church's statement of faith summarizes the Bible's teaching on this matter. In it, we declare that our belief that marriage is a single, exclusive, covenant union intended to be lifelong, entered into by one man and one woman, to which God bears witness. Such a union is the sole or only context for sexual intimacy. Abraham was blessed by God, yes, but he was also disobedient to God on this point. Abraham's practice of having concubines was immoral, sinful, and offensive to God. And as we learn over and over again in the scriptures, our heroes of the faith are deeply fallen and flawed. There is not a perfectly righteous one among them. We learn from their faith and their faithfulness to God, and we also learn from their fallenness and failures. We learn that they all need Jesus, just as we do. God shows grace to sinners. They're the only kind of people in this room. They're the only kind of people in this world. God's grace to a fallen and flawed man like Abraham ought to give you hope that he might show grace to you. God shows grace to the fallen and flawed. And he also gives his people grace to place their whole hope in him and his promises. Notice what Abraham does there in verse 5. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Now, though Abraham had other children through Keturah, Abraham puts all of his eggs in one basket, so to speak. While Abraham gives gifts to his other children, thus providing for his family, he gave all that he had to Isaac. He remembered God's promises in Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, where the Lord told him that through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham actually goes further in verse 6. Do you see it? He sends his other children away to make plain that they have no claim on his inheritance. God's promises are going to pass on to Isaac and to Isaac alone. Here Abraham is depending solely and completely on the promises of God. Do you do this? Now think about when you face risk. Right? When, when you face risk in this world, you think, maybe I'll spread out my assets right, so that I don't lose everything. Hopefully, if one investment fails, the other ones will keep everything afloat and moving on just fine. Make up for that loss, even. That's not what you do with the promises of God. We don't treat God's promises like investment assets. No, you go all in on the promises of God. He can be trusted. He will never fail. Have you gone all in on the promises of God? Like Abraham goes all in on the promises of God concerning Isaac. Do you depend completely and entirely on Jesus, God's chosen son. Learn from Abraham. Have faith like Abraham. Ask God to give you the same grace that he gave to Abraham. To trust God and his promises concerning his son. As we can see from verses 8 and 9, God even gave Abraham the grace to die well. These verses fulfill God's promises of Genesis 15, 15, where Yahweh said, As for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. 
Abraham, he had been preparing for death. He had set his house in order. In faith, he purchased a cave grave years earlier. And notice too, in verse 8, that Abraham is gathered to his people. That's a phrase in the Bible that speaks to the nature of your soul. The world says that when you go down into the dirt, you're done. But that's not at all true. The grave is not the end for you. And you know it because God has set eternity in your heart. You have an eternal soul. And you will be gathered to your people. People who either trusted in God and His grace and His promises. Or you will be gathered to people who turned away from God and His grace and His promises. The Bible teaches us that those are the only two options. The only two places that we will be gathered to. Either to with God's people in eternal dwelling and delight and glory. Or to eternal damnation and destruction away from God and His presence. The Bible teaches, as the old catechisms put it, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Abraham, he believed in the resurrection. That's why he bought that plot of land in Genesis 23. He wanted to get up from his grave in the land that God had promised to his people. Abraham died in faith, trusting God in His grace. He did not receive the full measure of God's promises to him. Though he had many offspring, they certainly weren't by the time he died, the great multitude promised. Though he had a small burial plot in the promised land, it certainly wasn't the whole territory that God had promised to him. Still, Abraham died in faith, believing that God would one day keep his promises in full. In the words of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, Abraham died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Abraham died well. And if you want to die well, then you will live well. What does that mean? It means living, trusting in the grace and the promises of God. Live believing the promises of God. Die believing the promises of God. Until your last breath, trust and depend upon the grace that God has revealed in Jesus Christ. God was gracious to Abraham even after his death. He shows that he keeps his gracious covenant by blessing his son Isaac. You can see that in verse 11. Do you see there? You read, After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son. And Isaac settled at Behir Lahai Roi. The words of blessing are meant to communicate to us that grace and blessing that God had poured out on Abraham is now being passed on to his son Isaac. The gracious promise of lineage and land would now be passed on to Isaac and his descendants. And with this blessing, the hope of the Messiah, the promises of Genesis 3.15 that God will one day send his son, now flows and follows the channel of Isaac's line. But Moses, he pauses the story on Isaac's line to tell us once again of Ishmael. Here we learn of God's grace toward an outsider. This is our second point. God's grace to an outsider. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 25, verses 12 to 18. Genesis 25, verses 12 to 18. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Naphish, and Kedema. 
These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Why does Moses give us this information about Ishmael? Right? God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Haven't we kind of moved on from Ishmael? Haven't we been reminded enough, really, of Abraham's sinful and sordid relationship with Hagar? Aren't we now concerned with the promised line in Isaac and God's grace to him? We are. But beloved, God shows common grace to all, even to outsiders. And we need to know this about our God. God is faithful to everyone He makes promises to. And He made promises concerning Ishmael. So in Genesis chapter 16, verse 10, the angel of the Lord said this to Hagar, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And what do we see here? In Genesis 25, verses 12 to 15, God's promises concerning Hagar's offspring and Ishmael's descendants are coming true. God is keeping His promises. He's showing grace to Ishmael in His line. And then, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 20, when Abraham was having a hard time believing that God would really send a son through Sarah, and yet he had Ishmael right there, he pleaded with the Lord to accept Ishmael. The Lord told Abraham no. And so God told Abraham that the promises would come through Isaac, and that still, yet Ishmael would be made into a great nation. And do you see what verse 16 says? These are the sons of Ishmael. And these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. There are rulers emerging in Ishmael's line. Nations are being formed. God is keeping His promises. In fact, there's one more promise that God made concerning Ishmael. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 12, the Lord said that Ishmael would raise his hand against everyone and that he would dwell over and against all his kinsmen. Do you see how verse 18 concludes? He settled over against all his kinsmen. With this, we're reminded that Ishmael, the older brother, mind you, was not the promised son. He was like Abel, also an older brother, who raised his hand against his brother and killed him. Ishmael was a violent man. Ishmael, remember, scorned Isaac, the chosen son. And that's why he was sent out of Abraham's house. Instead of receiving the son that God chose, he rejected Isaac. He was an outsider. Ishmael was an outsider, an unbeliever, and still God showed grace to him. He kept his promises to Ishmael and gave him offspring and rulers. Our God is faithful to all of his promises and all he makes promises to. The Bible teaches us that God is gracious both to the just and the unjust, or outsiders, unbelievers. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, Jesus says this, For He, God, makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In Acts chapter 14, verse 17, the Apostle Paul declares that God did good to the unbelieving people of Lystra by giving them rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. This is often referred to as God's common grace. His generosity that He shows indiscriminately to His creation. 
And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're an outsider like Ishmael, then you need to know that God has been gracious to you in a general way. The sun shining upon you today, the rain falling, is a blessing of God. The food and clothing, the life and breath that He has given to you is a gracious gift from God. You have shelter and shade because of God. But you don't have to remain an outsider. You can receive yet more grace in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Saving grace. You can come into the people of God through faith in His chosen Son. The earthly blessings that you enjoy are meant to lead you to the Heavenly Father and the Son whom He has sent, the Son whom He has chosen to offer salvation and blessing through in Jesus Christ. Learn a lesson from Ishmael. Be careful of being content with God's material blessings while being separated from God's saving blessings. Friend, God promises to save all of those who trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, believe that God offers you salvation in Jesus Christ. Confess that you've sinned against God, that you've fallen short of the glory of God. Confess that you have despised and rejected God's Son. And then repent of that. Turn around. Turn away from your rejection and instead receive the Son that God offers. Receive Jesus Christ and He will embrace you in His arms. Believe that Jesus lived for you. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. The life that you have not lived. The life that I have not lived. The life that not any of us in this room or in this world have lived but Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus died on the cross bearing the punishment that was due to your sins. Believe that He was paid your wages for working in sin in His death. And believe that He got up from the grave on the third day to extend forgiveness to you. Forgiveness of your sins. Believe that in receiving Jesus, in receiving God's Son, you'll be welcomed into God's family. That's the promise that God makes to all of those who receive His Son. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead for you, you will be saved. Oh friend, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be welcomed into His family today. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Friend, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will not be cast out like Ishmael. You will no longer be an outsider, but you will be forever welcomed in to the family of God. If you want to know more about what it means to trust God and trust that He keeps all of His promises in His Son and that you can be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and be removed from being an outsider and be welcomed into the family of God, come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or the family member that you came here with this morning. I'd love to talk to you about this good news. You can be welcomed into the family of God. And Christian, I want to say a word to you about how God's grace to outsiders is common grace should strengthen your faith. Christian, God's grace to Ishmael would teach the people of Israel, the people who first received this book, that God's faithfulness is unwavering. They can take His promises to bank, to the bank. For even if He even keeps His promises to Ishmael, then He will keep His promises to them. If God would keep His promises even to Ishmael, then how much more would God keep His promises to His people? And dear Christian, the same is true for us today. If God kept His promises to them, to Ishmael, if He shows common grace to our society, bringing the sun and the rain and the seasons, offspring and the development of nations, then how much more can we be certain that God will be faithful to His promises to us and to bring us all the way home in and through Jesus Christ?
Part of the reason that we have the Old Testament record is for God to show us His faithfulness over and over again. He shows us His faithfulness, His record of faithfulness over and over again so that we who so frequently struggle with doubt and disbelief, we can be assured of God's love for us. Beloved, see in really the the first half of Genesis 25 that God is faithful to all of His promises. And that ought to impart special encouragement to the promises He makes to His people. When He says... I will never leave you or forsake you. You can believe Him. He's proven Himself faithful. When He says, I'm going to return and take you to Myself, you can see in a track record of history of faithfulness in the Old Testament that He will indeed keep His word to you. When He says that He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness because of the blood of Jesus, you can believe Him. You can believe His promises. Our God has a proven track record of faithfulness and grace. God has shown grace to an old man. He's shown grace to an outsider. And now we see that he shows grace to an opportunist. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 34. Genesis 25, verses 19 to 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Pad Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord Yahweh for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord Yahweh granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord Yahweh. And the Lord Yahweh said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. These verses, they culminate really toward the end we see of God showing grace toward the opportunist Jacob. But they begin with his parents and the pain they're experiencing there in verses 19 to 21. Here we have the, uh, the formal beginning of the count of the line of Isaac. 
The language which begins there in verse 19, these are the generations of, is a common refrain in the book of Genesis. It appears some 11 times or so in the book, and scholars call this the Toledo formula. Uh, Many have recognized that this is a structuring element in the book of Genesis. As I said, it occurs almost a dozen times. Now just stop and think about the fact that Moses is structuring this historical account. The very fact that this story is structured reminds us that God sovereignly structures His history of grace. God didn't wind up the world to step back and kind of watch it spin. No, He is actually involved in the history of His world. He has a plan for it. He has a plan for the people He places in it. People including you. He has a plan for Isaac and Rebecca, even in the midst of their pain of barrenness. That was actually part of God's plan too. It was part perhaps of teaching Isaac what it means to trust God and depend upon God. You see here that Isaac, he actually doesn't commit the same sin that his father Abraham committed. You'll remember that when Sarah, Isaac's mother, was barren, they sought the help of Hagar rather than the help of heaven. But that's not what Isaac does, is it? He seeks heaven's help through prayer. And he especially prays for his wife. Did you notice that in verse 21? Isaac prayed for Rebekah. He interceded for her as every loving husband should do for his wife. The Lord graciously granted Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, when you look at verse 21, it makes it seem like the Lord answered Isaac's prayer immediately. But that's not actually true. Skip down to Genesis chapter 25, verse 26. Do you see verse 26 where it says there about Isaac's age? Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. You see, Isaac, he actually married Rebekah when he was 40. That means that 20 years of barrenness hovered over this dear couple. Isaac must have prayed and prayed and prayed. He must have patiently waited for God to answer his prayer. Here we learn that what we have learned before, it's the Lord who opens the womb. The reason why anyone has a baby is because God graciously grants the conception of a baby. And if God places a baby in a womb, no one should remove that baby through mutilation or murder. Beloved, our culture will tell you today that women should have the right to choose what to do with their bodies. When you hear that language, remember that it is an attempt to un-God God. Never reject the gift that God has given Every child is a gracious gift from the Lord and ought to be received as such. God not only answered Isaac's prayer, He answered it doubly so. For in Rebekah's womb were not one, but two children. When the pain was heavy, Isaac prayed. When the pregnancy was hard, Rebekah prayed. And God answered God not only revealed that there were two children in her womb, but that really, from these two children, are actually come two different nations. And God is revealing that He chose one over the other to carry on His covenant purposes. Carefully note God's words in verse 23. There were two nations in Rebekah's womb. The nation of Edom, that's why Edom's mentioned later in connection with Esau. Esau is going to be the father of that nation. And then the nation of Israel is in Rebekah's womb of whom Jacob will be the father. And in fact, in the story of Genesis, we're going to see later that Jacob takes on the name Israel. So the the struggle that's happening within her womb is what would actually happen when those boys came into the world. Perhaps you remember what happened when Israel actually came out of Egypt. 
in Numbers chapter 20, verse 14 to 21. Israel, the offspring of Jacob, requested to pass through the land of Edom on their way to the promised land of Canaan. But Edom spitefully refused. Throughout Israel's history, Edom and the descendants of Esau were often an opponent of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. And that is always the way it is in the world, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Remember, running through the storyline of the Bible are those two seeds. The seed of the serpent, the children of the devil, as the Apostle John calls them in his letter, and the children of the living God, the seed of the woman. And this opposition and conflict is always the way it is. It's always the way it is between the children of God and the children of the devil. It's always the way it is between the church and the world. Do not be surprised when the world goes to war against the church. Beloved, one day the church will reign over the world with Christ. The victory of the people of God is predicted, even right there in verse 23. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. There is the picture of victory here in Jacob, ruling over even his older brother Esau. And as we can see from the development of these boys... Esau certainly did appear to be stronger than Jacob. But Esau would serve Jacob. God was choosing one of these boys, and not the other, to be the father of his people Israel. Here Moses is unfolding for us the doctrine of election. God's gracious choice to call and to save a people for his own glory. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul ties the election of the people of God to this very text. So the natural question is this. Why does God choose Jacob? And not Esau to carry on his promises. In Romans chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, Paul tells us why. The Apostle Paul says this about Jacob and Esau. Though they were not yet born, and had done nothing good or either bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. God's election of Jacob, and not Esau. God's election of some to salvation and not others, shows us that salvation is wholly, completely of God's sovereign grace. God's undeserved and unmerited favor. That's what grace is. It is undeserved and unmerited favor from God. God shows grace so that no man may boast. God's choice did not rest on any word or any work done by any man. God's choice was simply and sovereignly God's choice. God is not contingent upon any man. That's why it's unbiblical to say that God kind of looked down the corridors of history and saw us respond to His promises in faith. And so He elected us. No. That makes God dependent upon man. And that is thoroughly unbiblical. For God is totally and utterly free and sovereign in His gracious choice. Election unto salvation does not come from being of a particular heritage or in a particular home or, as we're seeing here, of a particular birth order. It comes from God because God is particularly gracious to sinners. Again, Paul points out just a few verses later in Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, that God said that He would have mercy on whom He would have mercy and He would have compassion on whom He would have compassion. Paul writes then, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. If you're a Christian, it wasn't because you were smarter. 
If you're a Christian, it wasn't because you were more spiritually sensitive and attuned. No. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Just like the rest of the world. The reason that God chose you from before the foundation of the world was simply because He decided to set His love upon you. And the same was true for the people of Israel. When God was explaining His gracious choice of them as a nation in the book of Deuteronomy, when He's explaining His electing love to them in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, He said this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord Yahweh set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord Yahweh loves you. Why did God choose to love Jacob? Because He chose to love Jacob. Why did God choose to love you? Because He chose to love you. Your salvation could occur in no other way. I'm reminded of a gentle hymn that we actually sing here from time to time. Number 289 in your hymnals goes like this. My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you, had you not chosen me. You took the sin that stained me. You cleansed me, made me new. Of old you have ordained me, that I should live in you. It's true. Friends, you can kick against God and how He has decided to dole out salvation in His world. Or you could submit yourself to Him, praise Him, and receive His salvation, and thank Him for His grace. We don't know who God's chosen are, but we know that all those who trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, have been chosen from before the foundation of the world. Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It is not our job to sort out who are the chosen and who are not. Who are the elect and who are not. Our job is to go and to take the gospel to all. To indiscriminately share the good news of Jesus Christ with our friends and family members and neighbors. And let God sort out His choice. As Charles Spurgeon once said, Lord, save the elect and elect some more. That's right. We want to see God bring more and more people into His kingdom. And our call is to trust Him. And to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us remember Paul's words about the kind of people that God chooses. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The Lord's revelation to Rebekah in verse 23 is programmatic in the sense that it sets the agenda for what unfolds in the life of the boys. We even begin to see this in their birth and their description there in verses 24 to 28. As one pastor pointed out, in Esau we meet the Bible's first redneck. His name is really derived from his description there. He's red and he's hairy. It's actually also foreshadowing his sad obsession with red stew. And the same is true for Jacob. Jacob's name is derived from his hand holding Esau's heel as he comes out. He's a heel grabber throughout the course of his life. And even in the verses ahead... We see that he's always grasping for a way to get ahead. He's an opportunist, really, of the purest sort. Jacob is also described there in verse 27. You see these words as a quiet man and a man dwelling in tent. 
Now, being a quiet man in the scriptures can actually have a, a righteous kind of connotation. It's a righteous description of a man and his integrity. A righteous man is not divided and disturbed in soul, but he's calm, he's whole and resting in the Lord. That's the kind of description that we're given of Jacob. We're also told there are these dwelling in tents. And this, of course, would be a direct connection to the people of Israel who first received the book of Genesis. Remember that this book has an audience. They were those who were dwelling in tents in the wilderness. Moses was writing to these people who were on their way to the promised land of Canaan, preparing to enter into their inheritance. And Moses wants his readers to see themselves in Jacob, in their father, who would later be named Israel, the father of their nation. He wants them to see themselves in this passage. And before we see where all of this is headed, parents and future parents need to be alerted. Perhaps I should say grandparents too. Need to be alerted to the dangers of verse 28 there. You see verse 28? Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now a very literal translation of the, the first half of verse 28 would be Isaac loved Esau because food in mouth. Esau caught and brought him game. Isaac indulged the passions of his flesh. And that would be a trait that emerged in Esau. Esau was a brute, just worried about the next bite or bowl of stew. And he got it from his dad. Passing on particular proclivities to sin is a warning. But so is a divided household that plays favorites. Isaac loved Esau. Rebecca loves Jacob. Moms and dads, don't play favorites. As we're going to see in the book of Genesis, favoritism in a household is going to reap great destruction. Moms and dads, love the kids that the Lord gave you. Don't play favorites. I can tell you that even when you do your best to be even-handed in your home, you probably won't escape the charges of, being, of playing favorites with your children. Every time you say no will be an opportunity for a child to compare their situation with their siblings and for them to levy the charge that you have been playing favorites. But if you love them and you do your best to be even-handed in your home, then you know the truth. And deep down, I think they probably do too. Most importantly, the Lord knows the truth. But where is God's gracious choice of Jacob headed? We see God's gracious, God's grace to the opportunist there in the verses that close the chapter. Now, the, the central concept really in uh, verses 29 to 34 in this scene is that of a birthright. According to God's law, in Deuteronomy 21, verse 17, we learn that the firstborn son in Israel was to receive a double portion of all that his father has. So in other words, ordinarily, the firstborn son was to receive two-thirds of his father's estate. That's what was coming to Esau. But what God promised would actually eventually end up in Jacob's hands. Here we find Jacob grasping and scheming for a way to get ahead. Esau, as we saw in his description earlier, might have been a hunter in the great outdoors. But Jacob knew how to set his own trap indoors. As one writer put it, Jacob was a clever hunter, laying a trap for a hungry animal. Jacob knew his brother loved to eat, and that the passions of his flesh could not be restrained. Esau was hungry, but he wasn't anywhere near death. The passions of his flesh and his pursuit of immediate gratification had him enslaved. And in this way, Esau is a warning to us. Beloved, be careful about the passions and impulses of your flesh. Esau is clearly giving himself to them. 
And that's why Jacob was able to take the upper hand and barter for Esau's birthright. Esau's birthright was worth nothing to him. He not only sells it quickly, but he eats quickly. The, the words there of the text are really choppy and quick. He shovels the food into his mouth and he shuffles away. Now what's interesting is that Moses, as the narrator, doesn't lay any of the blame at Jacob's feet. So the, the conclusion of the scene is not, in this way, Jacob sinfully stole the birthright from Esau. Instead, when Moses actually steps in to give his evaluation of what's happened, he says this, Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Jacob, the opportunist, received the grace of that birthright, and Esau rejected the blessing, that grace of his inheritance. Now let's be clear. Jacob didn't deserve the, first, the, the, the birthright of the firstborn. It was simply the birthright that God in His grace had chosen to give to him. Jacob, in his life, is going to prove that he is a sinful schemer. Neither of these men were deserving. As Ian Duguid has observed, one of them regards his spiritual birthright as less valuable than a bowl of soup. And the other regards it as a commodity to be bought and maneuvered for. That's how these boys were thinking about their birthright. He goes on, Neither one deserves God's work in his heart. What more proof do we need that our salvation is all of grace? What do you think all of this would have communicated to the children of Jacob, the people of Israel, those dwelling in tents there in the wilderness? What do you think it would have communicated to the children of Jacob who were preparing to receive their promised inheritance in Canaan? Don't you think they would have learned that they should not despise the gracious inheritance that God promised them, and that they should not sell out or settle for anything less than what God had promised to them? Isn't that a lesson for us to learn too? Isn't the world constantly holding out for us immediate pleasures, seeking to tempt us to give up Christ for the passions of our flesh? Beloved, we can't settle for anything less than Christ and the inheritance that He has promised to us. That's exactly the lesson that the writer to the Hebrews communicates to the New Testament Christians in Hebrews chapter 12. We read it earlier in the service, but I want us to read it again. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 1009. And while you're turning there, remember that the book of Hebrews was written to Christians living under the new covenant in Jesus Christ. It was written to Christians just like us. It was written to us. Over and over again, the author of Hebrews likens Christians to the wilderness generation, the very same generation that Moses wrote to, the very same uh, generation that received Genesis. Christians, uh, the writer of the Hebrews he's writing to, these Christians were under intense persecution, just like the people of Israel being afflicted in the wilderness by Edom. The writer of Hebrews was particularly concerned that Christians not turn away from God's grace given to them in Jesus Christ. Many were tempted to turn back to Judaism. Instead, he wants to help them make it all the way home to the promised land of heaven and receive the grace of their inheritance. He doesn't want his readers or us to be short-sighted. So he uses Esau as an illustration of what it looks like to give up a gracious inheritance for momentary pleasure. As we conclude, listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. This is to a people who are tempted to turn back 
a people who are weak. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Do you hear that charge? You have to help each other make it home. You have to help each other hold on. Look around, see who's struggling, and help them keep going. That's what he's saying to these Christians. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected and found no chance to repent though he sought it with many tears. Beloved, let us learn from Esau. He despised the gracious inheritance and vindicated God's choice of Jacob. So when you see a brother or sister struggling, when they're tempted to turn away, you need to turn them to Jesus Christ and tell them, He is your grace. He is your inheritance. And you will live forever with Him. Don't turn away from Him. We have to help each other. Let us not trade the world here and now. For the worlds to come. Let us not buy in on this world. And miss the blessing of that worlds to come. Let us remember that because of Jesus. We have an inheritance that can never spoil or fade. That is in heaven. That is kept for us. And secure by God. Let us help each other make it home. And so how do we guard against despising our inheritance? Only by actively delighting in the cross and the glory of Jesus Christ. As we'll sing in just a few moments. We'll sing of our inheritance. Behold our God shall live with us. You're going to live and reign and dwell forever with Him. And He will be our steadfast light. And we shall heir His people be forever. We will be His people. And so all glory be to Christ. That is your gracious inheritance. Nothing less than eternally dwelling with Christ. So delight in that grace. Delight in Jesus Christ. Now and forever. Let's pray for that grace now. Would you join me in prayer?